0: a certified life coach and eating disorder recovery coach with a PhD in having a good time. Just kidding about that last part. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Hey everyone, today's guest is Kathleen Bishop. Kathleen is a health at every size informed therapist who uses her training as a certified intuitive eating counselor to guide her practice when working with clients who have a history of disordered eating and body image problems. Kathleen is also trained in EMDR and uses it often in her practice. In this session, we discuss EMDR, also known as eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, to support her clients through healing. If you've been curious about EMDR, which I know many of you are, this is going to be the episode you want to hear. Hey, Kathleen, how are you today? I'm doing great. It's so awesome to have you on the show. Glad to be here. Yeah, we're really happy you're here. And I know the topic today is going to be super informative and interesting for the listeners. We're going to dive into EMDR as it relates to body image issues and potentially eating disorders. But before you and I dive into that, I'd love to hear about your background. How did you become a therapist who focuses on body liberation and intuitive eating? And also, how did you end up getting into EMDR? Okay,
1: so big question. Uh, I had my own eating and body image issues for many, many years. I had an eating disorder when I was in my 20s. I was able to stop, which is quite unusual. I was bulimic and I was bulimic a lot. And then I got into a 12-step program for substance use. And somehow or another, I was able to stop while I was in that program and I'm still in that program. But it didn't stop the body loathing. It didn't stop the chronic dieting. It didn't stop the chronic trying to change the shape and size of my body and thinking my body was wrong. And that went on for, you know, I want to say I'm 37 years sober. I want to say like 30, close to 30 years. So 30 years of my sobriety, I felt like it was kind of half sobriety because I still had this hatred of myself, my body. And I was constantly critiquing it and checking it. You know, it was disordered eating, but it didn't meet the criteria for an eating disorder anymore. But it was interfering with my ability to function. And people don't talk about like when you are dieting, you know, the high of losing the weight, but they don't talk about the depression that comes after when you gain the weight back and how debilitating that is. And that was my roller coaster ride for many, many years. And I discovered intuitive eating from a friend and she introduced me to a therapist that was using health at every size and intuitive eating together. And it changed my life. Like I was blown away. And so I started working with her and I didn't work with her as a therapist, more as a coach. And she wound up becoming like a mentor for me. I wound up taking over her practice over the years, like within a few years. And so, because she retired and she's still a very close friend and colleague. So I got introduced and it was like, oh my God, because I'd been looking, I'd been searching. I'd been searching for the magic bullet that was going to, the new improved diet that was going to change my life. And it turns out like listening to my body that my body came with instructions was the answer. And so I was so excited about it that I became certified in intuitive eating because I wanted to add that to my repertoire as a therapist. So I use health at every size, feminist theory, and intuitive eating in my practice. Mm. That's how I came to it. And the other part of the question. How
0: did you discover EMDR? But I'll go into that after. Well, I want to dive in a little bit with what you just shared. Um, Sure. What did it feel like for you? to, first of all, be in that place where you're no longer having an active eating disorder, but you're stuck with the body hatred and the, you know, wanting to change your body and chronic diet. What was it like for you?
1: It was awful. It was torture. It
0: was my weight's
1: down. I go to the party. My weight's up. I don't go to the party. Like I withdraw. My life gets smaller and I'm not worthy. And I don't want people to see me because they saw me you know, in that really small dress. And now it just was debilitating. It interfered with my ability to function. Like I said, it may not have met the criteria for a specific eating disorder. It might have met the criteria for unspecified. But the problem is, is that half the culture is this way, (laughs) you know, like, like this is what the culture promotes. Go on the next diet, you know, gear up again, do it again. And if you go to psychology today, this blew my mind if you go to psychology today and you put a search in for weight loss thousands of therapists will pop up that's part of their expertise and i'm like what the hell is going on here why are therapists like helping people lose weight when the research is really clear you know that 95 to 98 percent of people gain it back and of that 95 to 98 two-thirds gain bonus pounds that would be me and why is that such a thing and that's what i tell people when they you know, contact me and they still want to lose weight. As I'm like, you know, I don't do weight loss, but there's thousands of therapies that will help you with that. But informed consent, it doesn't work. So I felt awful. I felt like I was living around it and the body loathing was like the background music of my mind. Like I'd get up in the morning and like my thighs would rub together and it would start. Mm. And it, you know, I'd catch a glance of myself in the mirror at a wrong angle and it'd be like, it's on. We're going to just terrorize you for the rest of the day.
0: Wow. Yeah. It reminds me of what you and I were talking about before we recorded, which was when you are actually recovered and you discover the body liberation and health at every size, you do gain that protective mindset of, you know, that world that penetrated your life 30 years after your sobriety. Yeah. Yeah. Like you had not developed that thick skin yet.
1: I hadn't, and it's a lot of work to dismantle from diet culture and from body hierarchy. You know, some bodies are better than others. Light skin bodies are better than others. Like we have a body hierarchy in our culture that exists and is very prominent and invasive. It's so invasive that fourth grade little girls are on diets. Kindergarten girls are worried about their bodies. Like it's so invasive. And so, yeah, I had to do the work to build up that protective skin. And I got to tell you, initially I was angry. I was so angry when I started to discover how insidious this is. And I felt like I didn't have a skin for that. Like I was just angry when I would see it, when people would make comments, I was just angry and I didn't know what to do with that anger. And so, you know, part of my practice is feminist theory. And so it's like, you know, I'm going to look at this and I'm going to look at it from like a, a distance and I'm going to start studying it and I'm going to start understanding it. And over time, as I built the skin for it, I call it the, the bubble wrap around you, as I built that, the anger started to dissipate. And I'm not saying I'm still not angry about it, but I'm not like walking around angry all the time. And so it's a phase a lot of people go through that they'll say yeah, I'm angry. And part of it is the grief of mourning the thin ideal, like that magic destination, happiness, I'll be happy when, got annihilated. And so grief is part of the healing process and anger is part of grief.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I could totally see that. And I do feel like a lot of that anger could also come from, I was sold a lie. Exactly, and that is, that's it. Like I was sold a lie. And also, how did I fall for this, right? Yeah. I feel like I'd be mad at myself. And I help people put that
1: anger outward, like to stop blaming them. How could you not? Like, how could you huh. not in this culture have bought it hook, line and sinker? I put my anger into starting an Instagram page that, you know, I think I, at this point, I'm about 14,000 followers and I put messages out like weekly of dismantling this and it makes me feel good. And I've had the page for like six years now. And when I started, there weren't that many pages and a ton of pages. So I'm so excited about that. Like, I'm not saying there weren't any pages. There just weren't as many pages for Fat Liberation for body acceptance, for intuitive eating. Now it's exploded. And that's good and bad because you have people who don't know what they're talking about acting like they know what intuitive eating is and they're not certified in it and they're trying to practice it. You know, so that's the downside. But the good side is people can find it, can find the information.
0: Wow. So, okay, you discovered intuitive eating. Was it easy for you to? turn towards that or was
1: that a struggle once you No, no, I was hungry for it. Like I was just on fire for it immediately because it spoke to my soul. Like it was the truth. My body came with an instruction kit. The best predictor of weight gain is a diet. And I'd been doing that for years and years. So it was like, oh, if I stop restricting, I won't be obsessive about food. I won't eat all the cookies when they're in the house. Like I started experimenting. Walker's shortbread cookies was mine. And I just bought a whole slew of Walker shortbread cookies and had them in the house. And the first couple of days, I ate a bunch of them. And after about three or four days, I was like, they're just cookies. And I was a little sad about that.
0: (laughs) I actually see that a lot in my practice. I see people miss the idealization of the food or the fantasies around the food. Well, there's
1: actually some biological stuff happening. When you hold something in restriction, your brain registers it as tasting better than it actually is. Yes. And so you have the psychological factor going on of the restriction. Then you have the biological factor going on of the reaction to the food because you restrict it. And so then when you have it, it's like this amazing thing. And you're not going to have that anymore. Food's going to be food. It's going to taste amazing and you're going to have lots of opportunities to have lots of different kinds of foods. But that one food that you held up in this plate, it's called habituation, is where you unravel that to where it becomes neutralized. Yeah, Habituation yeah. is an area that one of the authors of Intuitive Eating talks about, that you habituate yourself to foods by having them in the house, by not restricting. Them. And people will say, I'm sure you've run into this, oh no, if I have chips in the house, I'll eat them all and all the time. Like I'll never stop eating chips. Yeah, you, well, you get sick of them at about four days.
0: Yeah, it's frustrating to me because I, I find when people say that, they're acting like that's coming from a place of power, but it's really coming from a place of like powerless restriction. Like yeah. you can have it in the house. Yeah. Or in reality, true power comes from having an abundance of it and you choosing when you want it. And really it. Want
1: it. yeah, Yeah.
0: And going,
1: and going inside and asking, do I really want this? And if I'm going to have it, I'm going to put it in a bowl. I'm going to put the chips in a bowl. I'm going to guesstimate how much I think I'm going to need to satisfy myself, not necessarily the serving size. I'm going to guesstimate how much I need and um, I'm going to eat them. And if I want more, I can go get more, you know, the additional permission to eat. And people think, because if you think about it, it's upside down and backwards to people. It was to me who've been trained to believe that it's the food. It's the sugar. It's the chips. It's the whatever. It's the pizza. I can't eat pizza. They don't realize that restriction causes the binge, and that it, it feels like an addiction, like the, there's qualities of addiction, but it's not an addiction. And people will argue one side down the other that it's addictive. And it just, that model doesn't work. If it was addictive, why when you have un- liberated access to it, unconditional permission to eat it, does do people report? And I've had hundreds and hundreds of people report, oh, now it's not an issue anymore. Like if it was truly addictive, Yeah. Like, tell somebody who's an alcoholic, just keep as much alcohol in the house and drink as much as you want. You'll be sick of it after four days.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's so true. It's such an interesting way to think about that. So, oh my gosh, we could dive into this all day. (laughs) I do want to get into the EMDR conversation with you because I know that's something people are asking about, they're curious about. And so, I guess to wrap up where we started, which is how did you discover EMDR? And yeah, let's just go with that.
1: I thought EMDR was BS. I thought it was woo. And, and I kind of like poo-pooed it. And then a therapist who I highly respect told me that she started using it in her practice and she was able to get people to a place of recovery, like instead of 10 years, in a couple of years.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I was like, and I respected this person. And so I thought, you know, I need to check this out. So I signed up for a weekend training. I'm with Mdria, which is the, I don't even know what the acronym is, but Mdria.org is the website. I'm Mdria certified. I should know the acronym by now, but I wanted to do it through a legit operation because there's a lot of weekend EMDR programs that people do and then they think they can do EMDR and it's so much more than that. The requirement for the weekend program is 40 hours of training, 10 hours of consultation, just to become trained not to become like certified or anything. And so you do two full weekends and then 10 hours of consultation. And I did the training. And in the training, they have practicums where you get practice on. And another therapist, you do it on a therapist, therapist does it on you. And so I picked something that I thought was like ridiculously like so long ago, like 45 years ago, because I didn't want to be embarrassed in front of my peers. So I picked something that I thought was already dealt with, but it was a trauma. And so I picked that I had gotten mugged and I had my skull fractured. And so I picked it, and oh my God, like during the processing, like I could actually hear my skull fracturing in my ear. I actually could feel somebody running up behind me. I could feel all of it, the panic, and I'm sobbing. <laughs> Not sobbing, <laughs> <It's practical. laughs> which is what I was trying to avoid. <laughs> and afterwards, the thing that showed me that this absolutely works is that I couldn't have made this happen somatically. I, as a result of being mugged 45 years ago, I still have this startle response that if somebody came up behind me, I would like, I would startle so badly that I would wind up comforting the person that startled me because they felt so bad about how startled I was. That's how big it was. It was big. I had no control over it. It was something that was in my brain. It was an emotional response and it was a survival response. I don't have it anymore. I didn't have it after that. I remember being in a parking lot and somebody coming up behind me to hand me a flyer. And I said, oh, no, thank you. And I'm like, <laughs> "Like who is this? Like, I don't startle. And that was such a relief. And I didn't even realize, because what happens when you have a trauma like that is you build a house around it, like you learn to live in it. Because what else are you going to do? <laughs> like, like What else are you going to do? I didn't know that there was a way out of the startle response. I didn't know that I couldn't process it at the time because it was so traumatic and that I could process it years and years and years later, decades later, and get relief. Like that just blew me out of the water. And that's when I no longer felt it. woe. I no longer thought it was BS. And I, I embraced it and I wound up getting trained, fully trained. Then I became certified, which is another many hours of training, many hours of consultation. And that's where I'm at now because I wanted to know more and I wanted to do it right. And there is no perfection in it, but I wanted to do it responsibly because it is a psychotherapy. You have a treatment plan and you follow it and there's protocols you follow. It's an eight phase process and you follow the eight phases. So it's a legitimate form of therapy. It just took me a while to come around to it.
0: Mm -hmm. That's such an incredible example. And I I love that you were able to find healing decades after the fact. I think that's- so profound and it's telling to how transformative this can really be. For those who might not necessarily know what EMDR is, could you share a little bit about what that is and maybe some of the science behind it?
1: Sure. So eye movement, desensitization, I can never say that word correctly, and reprocessing. That's what it stands for, EMDR. And it approaches psychological issues in an unusual way. We don't use medication. We don't use talk therapy. So that's weird you know you're not going to talk in your therapy session you're going to talk a little bit but it's going to be very directed and so what happens and i think a good way to describe it it's like if you were on a train and when you saw the scenery you felt like you were in it like you were in it and then you have emdr and now you're watching the scenery and you're not in it mm. like like you're not in the scene and it's like that with trauma you're in the scene when you remember it or when you get like me get this response, startle response. What happens with the MDR, it's an eye movement process where you're bilateral stimulation. I'm using my hands and people can't see that, but I use a program on the computer that has a light going back and forth. And what we do is we set up the trauma. We talk about it very briefly because I don't want people to get too into it. Notice where they feel it in their body. Notice what feelings are associated with it. What thoughts are associated with it like I'm not safe. Like for me, that would have been, I'm not safe is the cognitive thought and set up the scene of when it happened. And then we start with the light going back and forth across and do about 25 rounds back and forth. And then I stop the light and I say, what are you noticing? And I tell the client beforehand, I prep them, do not like get into a big dialogue and narrative about what you're noticing, just like the last thing or the most significant thing that's standing out, just say that, then I'll say, go with that. And we keep going and we might do that 25 times Mm -hmm. before. And what happens about little after midway of the session, what happens is the person gets an adult, like cognition about what's happening. Like, oh, you know, like I'm scared all the time about that happening again but I don't need to be scared all the time because that rarely happens. Like all of a sudden I'll get this like shift in how they're looking at it. They're looking at it from adult perspective instead of from the traumatized perspective. And it's amazing as a therapist to see this transformation happen during a session. And then there's some more steps that we do, but ultimately in one session, some things can be resolved. Some things take many sessions. Some things take Sessions to prepare the person to be able, because as I said, when we were talking before, it's asking the person to straddle the line between being in the present moment and being back in their trauma. And the person has to have enough ego strength and to be able to tolerate that and to be able to not go all the way into the trauma and stay there. We want them to be able to be in the present moment and in the trauma at the same time. So the person has to be healthy enough. i would worked with people for a year or more to get them to that place. Other people come in, they have a healthy ego strength what happened to me, you know, and they bring up the trauma. It's a single incident trauma, which are much easier to treat. Like the getting mugged, it's a single incident. It's not years of being abused. And resolution can happen in one session. Resolution happened for me in about 20 minutes. Like it was mind-blowing. So everybody's very different. And that's why it's very important to be well trained in this and not just be going off how cocked and thinking what you're doing.
0: Yeah. I can see it's a very fragile, delicate piece to be working with. It's someone's trauma, right? You can't just take that lightly. And And
1: you're dealing with dissociation. So you have to know how to
0: work with that.
1: You know, you have to know how to bring somebody back. You have to notice the signs when they're starting to dissociate. Like you have to be trained, you know, to be able to do these things. So it's very important to me that people are trained in it.
0: Yeah. And I hope everyone who's considering using EMDR goes to someone who's properly trained? How would you know if they are properly trained? I would go to emdria.org. It's
1: EMDR International Association. That's what it stands for. It just came to me. So emdremdria.org. And, you know, people can do it when they're trained. I did it for years while I was trained while I was getting my certification. If I'm telling a friend who would want to look for, I say get somebody who's certified or a consultant. Okay. Because then you know they've had years, and they've been it. like they've had years and years of training. And they're holding a certification that they have to keep up, like they have to keep doing training to do that. Because you'll never learn everything you need to know. Like if you're going to do it, you need to be training until you retire.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah. So helpful. As far as how it can link to healing body image or eating disorders, how do you see that coming into play? Okay. I'll give you an example.
1: For me with clients, the belly is the bane of most people's existence. The belly is where all the self-loathing goes to. Like it just holds all this pain and sorrow and self-loathing. And so I've done many bellies. <laughs> and what we do is the person is tells me all the awful things about their belly. Like it's disgusting. I hate it. It makes me feel sick to my stomach when I see myself, even a glimpse of myself in a reflection. They'll tell me all this stuff. So their belly is wrong. Their belly is bad. That's the cognitive distortion that we're working on. And so I'll have them conjure that up, like, you know, imagine your belly's right there. Like, what are the feelings associated? And then I will start doing the processing. And sometimes people are so shut down around it because they hate it so much. I'll have them put their hands on their belly. Mm. And then a lot of times the tears come because it's like, now we're in it. Now we're up in it. And in the pain of it, the excruciating pain of it. And so we start processing it. And I've had many clients come out the other end and be like, it's just my belly. <laughs> and so then I check in with them a month later, three months later, six months later, you know, how's your belly? It's just my belly. And so I know it holds. And if it doesn't hold for some reason, there's something else we need to process around it that we didn't hit. Like maybe I missed something or it wasn't there, you know, wasn't present. And so then we'll do some more, another session and clean that up. And I've had really good success with that.
0: Mm.
1: Because... Here's the thing, and this drives me crazy. Women are broken into body parts, arms, legs, belly, hips, butt, and they're all problem areas. And they're all marketed as a problem area to be solved by buying this cream, buying this diet, buying this lotion, buying this whatever. And so women look at themselves as body parts. They zoom in on their body parts. They zoom in on other women's body parts. And so what happens consequently is that that they're not seeing themselves as a whole. That was one of the beauties in my own recovery. I started focusing on like this whole body and this whole woman's body. And this whole, at the time, you know, it was in my 50s, this whole woman in her 50s body. And it's like, all of a sudden it wasn't parts. Like it made more sense and it wasn't something to correct. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And so that's one of the things I do when I'm helping people build some bubble wrap around themselves is we talk about looking in the mirror and just looking at the whole. And only looking as long as you can tolerate it. And only when a negative thought comes and trying to say neutral thoughts, like these legs are attached to my hips, you know, like just neutral things. And then eventually get into like these arms hug people, like an appreciation. These legs have carried me for all these years and like done a good job. This belly, you know, is big and it bore a child, like a child came through my body. Like really starting to appreciate what your body does instead of aesthetically what it looks like, body as instrument instead of body as ornament. Mm. So that's part feminist theory. Let's bring in all of that in.
0: Yes, that's always so necessary as part of the healing process. And I find it really fascinating and it makes sense to me that everyone's boiling down their body image, not everyone, but many people boil it down to a specific part. So you'd say in this EMDR process, a lot of times that's how how you would approach it is using EMDR to like unpack the trauma around a certain body part that's caused that the has legs, thighs are another one. Yeah,
1: it's okay. like th- your thighs are carrying all the self loathing. And then the, the other thing, you know, before we get to the EMDR, I talk to clients about, you know, what else would perform for you the way your bodies perform for you? Heart beating, a cut happens all the resources go to heal it. You get sick, your body gets you well. Like what else would work perform so magnificently for you when you talk
0: to it like it was a piece of crap? Yeah. Like what else would thrive the way your body thrives? It's really a force of nature. It's a beautiful force of nature that's here for you. Yeah. Okay. So as far as like body image, that makes sense. Now, does EMDR help with behavioral changes for folks who might be chronic dieting or using disordered behaviors? Does that come into play at all? Yeah, I mean, generally
1: speaking, it's not like cognitive behavioral therapy where you're looking at your thoughts and you're examining them, and you're doing the chain analysis, and you know, like you're looking at that process. It's something that it's kind of precognition that you're working on. you're working on, on traumas get stored in our brain somehow and our bodies it's somatic and our brain and so traumas get stored there and they get activated pre-thought like we're not like thinking oh I think I like my startle response I think I want to startle now like it's not in my prefrontal cortex it's in the primal part of my brain that's happening so that's the things that that I help people work out a lot. I'm not sure if that answered the question.
0: Yeah, I think it does. So essentially, if you have a behavior you're trying to change, you look for the kind of the root.
1: You look for the distorted cognition.
0: Okay. And then you, you work know. on that. Yeah, the negative
1: cognition. You work on that and you go back. Like somebody might come in and say, you know, hey, I just blew up at somebody. That guy stepped on my toe and I punched him in the face. And, you know, I don't know why I'm blowing up so much. Can you do MDR? And you go, okay, let's give it a go. And so it's like, you're not going to work on that incident where they blew up and punched somebody in the face. You're going to have them float back to the earliest time that happened. Not the earliest time that happened. You're going to have them float back. You're going to tell them all the feelings they were feeling when they got their toes stepped on. They had this big overreaction. And then you're going to have them just kind of float back to an earlier time when they felt similarly. The earliest time they felt that way. And not to try to censor what they're, even if it sounds crazy, like, you know, don't censor yourself. And so, you know, the first thing you comes up, tell me. And it turns out the kid was bullied. His father bullied him at eight years old. Mm-hmm. That's what's happening here. He got stepped on, he got threatened, and he overreacted. The key is that the feelings he was having when he got his toe stepped on are the same as when his father bullied
0: him.
1: Mm-hmm. That's the threat. That's the thread to the original, I call it the scene of the crime. <laughs> That's back to the original, because if you process this thing that happened, it's not going to hit that other thing. Yes. Okay. So you're always wanting to go back to like, I'll go with clients. When was the first time that you hated your belly? And sometimes it will be five, six, seven, eight, ten. 10. And like what happened? Well, you know, my mom said this, the doctor poked my belly and said, you need to stop eating ice cream. That's a true story of a friend and. We'll go back to that and we'll process that.
0: Okay, good to know. So it's back in the past and you find the negative cognition that's associated with that memory and that's where you work the trauma therapy around. You got it. <laughs> Yay, okay, look at that. I'm learning as, as the listeners are. Very interesting. So who is EMDR a good fit for and who's not a good fit
1: for it? Well, kind of what I spoke to before, somebody who has a very fragile ego state, you know that because they really believe like that they're the bad person or that's the bad but and they can't seem to shift out of it even a little. They can't seem to be in the observer stance and go, yeah, I know this is a problem and I should be thinking this way, but I don't know how to stop thinking this. They can't go there. It's just they're so fused with the negative thought that they think it's who they are. But that would require like subcognitive behavioral therapy. That would require some some talk therapy, you know, over time to help build them up and help them start to feel a sense of, you know, more of a sense of confidence in themselves. And I use parts work a lot. Like that's a part, like that's a part that hates your stomach. It's not your like true self. Like it's an add-on feature. <laughs> i love that yeah it got added on at some point and so i'll do talk there be exploring and i'll have them actually close their eyes and try to feel that part where they feel it in their body where they feel it. like sometimes there'll be tension in their shoulders or in their chest and i'll ask them to see if that part has like a shape or a color or a presence or is it a cartoon character or an animal like if it took physical form see if it can present itself to you and it's amazing how quickly people will go, oh yeah, it's a worse <laughs> Or it's this big, dark blob. And so, okay, so ask the blob like what its job is. And they'll ask the blob and the blob will go to protect you. It's like, okay, so tell me how you're protecting me. When protecting you, the reason that I tell you that you have to go on a diet, you have to go on a diet, you have to go on a diet, on a diet is because that way you won't be laughed at and people won't make fun of you. Like I'm protecting you. Then I ask the part, I I tell them to ask the part, how old does this part think you are? And they'll be like nine. And so I'll say, okay, I want you to go in with your birth certificate and your master's degree. And I want you to show the part and tell them how old you are. And a lot of times the part is surprised. They're like, part's totally blown away. And then (laughs) we start working with the part. What is this called is unblending from the part. No longer is it just who you are. It's a part that you can have a conversation with and that you start to see, and you start to see what this part needs. Like maybe the part is protecting a younger self. And so how do we help the part calm down so that we can tend to the younger self? So Mm -hmm. it's complex, you know, it's like a formula, it works. Yeah. I haven't done formal IFS, Internal Family Systems training. I have taken trainings, I have read the book, but I also have taken eco-state training, which is around way before Internal Family Systems. I've done ego states training with Francine Shapiro, who's an EMDR consultant and renowned in our field. I did many consultations with her. So so I'm trained in that. So I'm trained to help people kind of start to unblend from these ego states or add-on features that, that are getting in the way of them being able to love themselves.
0: Are there any patterns in that you see with people who have disordered eating, like similar ego states that people... Identify? Yeah. I mean, it's
1: kind of the same as other people. Like it's just this part that's really mean to them. (laughs) You know, that it's just that with eating disorders, it talks to them about their body. Like with somebody else, it's talking to them about their job performance, this critical period in the mind. And so so yeah, it's different topic, but same quality. Okay. Uh, Of self-loathing or critical parenting.
0: I can see that. Okay. Well, this is all so fascinating. Is there anything about EMDR that we haven't covered or that you feel you need to share that I am not picking up on? Because as you know, I'm learning as well. I can't (laughs) think of anything.
1: Just that if you're going to seek out an EMDR therapist, make sure they're certified with mdria.org. Okay, good. You you can go to the website and you can find a therapist there. And it's because that to me, I've had many clients come to me and they've had, not good experiences with EMDR. And they tell me what happened and I'm like, that's not EMDR. And also I use the eye movement. A lot of therapists use tapping and tapping's fine. I use it in resourcing, like resourcing a client before we do EMDR. That's another part of the process. And tapping's fine. It's just most of the research is done on the eye movement. And so I tend to stick with that. And I only use tapping for processing trauma if the client can't tolerate EMDR following the light for some reason. I'm not saying it doesn't work. It's not my first choice. My first choice is always what's been researched. What's been the the most researched.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's helpful to keep in mind as well. For those listening who are considering using EMDR, is there a particular reprocess from a session? Like, do they have to? Oh, yeah. Yeah, So if the issue was resolved, they're usually like
1: on cloud nine. (laughs) it's like that train thing. It's like they're not in it anymore. They're not in the scene anymore, but they can still see the scene. They can still remember the scene. But now they have this adult adaptive perspective instead of the negative cognitive distortion. And so now they have this adult perspective and they're like, and they have all these insights while we're doing the rounds. You know, they, they go from being in the trauma to all these insights, like several rounds of insights, like, oh my God, and this, and oh my God, and that. And now I'm remembering happy times, you know, around that happened at the same time in this incident. And I, before I could only think of the incident. And now I'm remembering I actually had fun and I had this and I had that. So they're having all these insights. So a lot of times the afterwards, I'll just ask my question is, you know, what have you learned? What do you know now that you didn't know before? And I'll let them explain that. If we have to break it up into sessions, I've resourced them to where they have a calm place and we'll do slow back and forth eye movement and have them go to their calm place and have them put this thing we're working on in a container that we previously created to put things in. Imagine that they're putting this whole issue in the container so that it's safe until we want to come back to it and so that they don't have to be haunted by it. So I always bring them back to a calm state if they're in a, you know, like coming from a trauma. Okay. Yes. And I also build resources like a nurturer, a protector, a wise one, to have to call on for them. Like that's all part of the resourcing process that we didn't get into because it's complex.
0: It sounds very complex, but well thought through. There's a lot to it for a reason.
1: Well, and this is why it's actually a psychotherapy because it's not just willy-nilly, you know, look at the light.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't it be nice if it was that simple? It it would be nice. nice, it's not that
1: simple and it wouldn't be credible
0: and it wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to research it. Well, as we wrap up, there's one question I have for you because you brought this up before we started recording. I thought it was really beautiful. So we might as well touch on this. You mentioned the importance of inside out living, and yeah. I was hoping you could share that with the listeners. So it's the idea of embodied living. I don't like the term so much, although we
1: use it and I use it body image. Because you think about it, body image, like I have to have an image of my body. Like I'm moving away from that towards embodiment. And embodied living is where you're living from the inside out rather than outside in. Outside in might be like a prescriptive diet that you're following, you know, like keto or something. That's outside in. That's not listening to what's happening inside. That's following something outside. Outside in might be listening to what other people are saying about bodies and how a body should look. Inside out is going inside I'm listening to your hunger. It's amazing how just listening to your hunger cues and your satisfaction cues and you're learning to do that is like a domino effect of starting to live an embodied life. And it's down to like checking in. Do I like it when that person says, you know, you need to lose a few pounds, a family member. Do I like it when they say that? What do I need to do about it? Do I like it when people comment on my food? Is that helpful? Or does it just send me into a tailspin? So how do I take care of that? so that I don't go into a tailspin. And learning how to set boundaries. You know, that's a big part of the body living. Please don't, you know, my standard is, please don't comment on my body, it's not helpful. My standard when somebody comments on please don't comment on my food, it's not helpful. Mm-hmm. Like I have that in my toolkit to just say automatically. And I say it that neutrally, I don't say, God damn it. Dang it. <laughs> I start yelling at people, <laughs> but I just say it very neutral, very matter of factly. And I try to do it subtly. Like if we're in a crowd, like I'll kind of whisper it to them. Oh, please don't comment. You know, it's just my way of saying that's not a topic of conversation. This is my body. This is my space. And what I put in it, how it looks is belongs to me. Mm-hmm. So that's part of embodied living is noticing what sets you are. And instead of people-pleasing, learning how to take care of what's happening inside. So it requires like checking in many times a day. Mm -hmm. And sometimes for people in early recovery, it's very scary or or have a lot of trauma. It's very scary to go inside. So That's what they've been avoiding their whole life. And that's why working with a qualified therapist or a treatment, you know, eating disorder program is so important because it might be really scary. You know, we tell people meditate. That might be the scariest thing for somebody to do. Being alone inside their head might be the, scariest thing. So we have to find alternatives, like allowing somebody to have their eyes open during a calming exercise or grounding exercise, using grounding instead of meditation.
0: Yes. Okay. So really embodied living is about checking in with yourself, constantly checking in with yourself and being able to make that your external reality, like setting those boundaries, communicating with others what's best for you. And not allowing anyone to tell you what
1: your inner reality is. Like we talked about before, my, Pet peeve is when people tell people you shouldn't feel that way. I'm already feeling that way. What are you talking about? Like, yeah, you're not inside my body. Like, I'm inside my body. That belongs to me. I have complete autonomy over it's mine. You don't get to decide what's happening inside. Mm
0: -hmm. That's also a really helpful component of it, too. And I see that a lot with people who are in recovery. They were told so many things that weren't their truth, but they accepted it from an external source as real. And that's really hard to break free from, you know, that thought pattern of thinking, oh, what's outside of me is actually true, but it's not.
1: Yeah. It's your own subjective experience. It's valuing that. And James Baldwin, who's was a civil rights activist and an amazing writer, just had such a perspective. He's black. He's deceased now, but he's a contemporary of Martin Luther King and Malcolm Abbas, Like He was around during that period. And he talks about when he would sit down to write, he would have to flick the little white man off his shoulder. Oh, wow. As the little white man would interfere with his ability to come from his ex- subjective experience. And I just thought that was such a powerful image, you know, that you're flicking this person that's telling you all these negative things about who you are. And you flick them off your shoulder so that you can write from within. Isn't
0: that beautiful? That's really beautiful and powerful. And that can be applied in so many ways. Like who is that little figure on the shoulder? Yeah. Who's
1: that little diet culture? You know, who's that Jillian? What's her name? Jillian. Jillian. (laughs) You can picture Jillian Michaels on your shoulder and you're just flicking her off that she's telling you don't eat that and you're a slob. You know, like just imagine you're flicking her off your shoulder. So that would be another way to create some bubble wrap around you and tap into your subjective experience. Wow.
0: Well, Kathleen, thank you so much. (laughs) This has been a really informative and insightful conversation. So I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today about EMDR and about you know, body image healing and embodiment. It's been a pleasure. It's been a
1: pleasure for me. And it's gone by so fast.
0: Yes, it has. It's gone by so fast. Thank you again. And I hope you have a beautiful day. You too. Take care.